Well, good morning. It is good to see all of you here who have joined us for our uh, in-person worship as we are kind of getting ourselves rebooted to meet together uh, in person. And it is exciting to see all of you uh, out there who have come to join us. And I thank you for your flexibility and, and being able to keep spread out. Uh, in this auditorium, but we are glad that you're here. And let me just also say to all of you who are joining us online this morning, how grateful we are that you are with us as well. And though I can't see you, I am very grateful that you uh, continue to support our ministry here by uh, choosing to, to worship with us online. And so we're glad to have you uh, with us uh, this morning as well. Uh, it was 10 weeks ago today. Um, that we met our last time. It was March the 8th, the last time that we were able to meet here together corporately. And uh, on that day, as I do pretty much every Sunday, I said these words to you. If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, take them out, turn with me to the Gospel of John, the 14th chapter. And um, in the Lord's providence, we find ourselves meeting back together in person again for the first time in 10 weeks. And for the first time in 10 weeks, I'm able to say these words to you yet again. We're on familiar ground. If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, take them and turn with me to John's Gospel, the 14th chapter. And it's just an interesting thing. As I was reflecting on that this week, I, I was thinking along the lines of the fact that it was our last time together, corporately, meeting this way, that I ask you to turn to that same chapter. And it's also been very interesting to me that that chapter begins, let not your heart be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me. And, and, and so I began to think about that. Now, when we were going through that point 10 weeks ago, we were still in the middle of the Follow Me series in which we were investigating all of the various places in the New Testament where Jesus uses those words, follow me. And so that particular Sunday, we landed on John 14, and, and, and really we were, we were going back to the picking up from what had happened in, in chapter 13 and, and looking at the benefits that come along with following Christ. And the benefit that we actually looked at there was that the Lord Jesus gives us peace. He gives us peace in the midst of our troubled times when we follow him. And that was the, that was the, the subject matter that we were addressing there, and I had no idea how appropriate Ultimately, that passage would be for us, particularly over the course of the next couple of months when everything around us has kind of been turned upside down and, and, and thrown sideways to us. And, and so to, to recognize that that was the passage that we looked at the last time we were together corporately, but then to consider that we've been working our way in our exposition of, of John 13 through John 17, and we find ourselves this morning landing right at that exact same passage again. And so I, 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 it is my confirmed commitment that in, in my belief that, that God never uh, surprises himself. He often surprises us. But in his providence, we find ourselves looking at the same passage, though I've expanded it this morning. It's a different sermon, so don't, don't turn off. It's not the same sermon that I preached 10 weeks ago. But we are going to look at, at verses 1 through 14 this morning as we continue our lessons from the upper room, as we look at this, this, this text of Scripture in which Jesus is teaching to his disciples just prior to his crucifixion and ultimately his death and resurrection and ascension. So with that as an introduction, let's turn there to John 14 and read these words. Very familiar passage of scripture, perhaps one of the most familiar in all the Bible. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, literally many rooms, many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us, and we thank you. We are truly grateful for the opportunity we have to meet together uh, this morning, to, to be able to, to share smiles with one another and to, to see one another's faces. And yet I know that there are those that, that still are unable to be with us today, and so we're grateful for the online ability that we have to, to continue to, to come together as a church family, both in person and online, and to be able to open the Word of God to know that it has been given to us and that it is your divine word and that you have inspired it and that we can open it up and read it. And here this morning, we are able to read the very words of Christ and to be able to hide those words in our hearts and to be able to see that they are, they are still active and alive and accomplishing wonderful things, even in our lives today, 2,000 years removed. What a great comfort that is and the great confidence that it gives us to be able to continue to make strides stepping forward in faith as we live this life that you've called us to live. Amidst in what is absolutely troubled times and weird times and times that many of us are trying to get our hands around and yet we recognize that our comfort comes not being able to understand all of that but to know that you, you're the sovereign God who stands above and beyond all of it. And you call us to faith in yourself. Help us to be able to receive that and to understand it this morning for your glory and for our good. This I pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. So here we're working our way through the conversations that Jesus has with his disciples while he's in the upper room with them on the night before he would be crucified and ultimately killed and dying on the cross for our sins. And, and when we get to chapter 14, just a cursory reading of this chapter, if you work your way through it, you'll find that it's bookended by, by really two commands that are identical to one another. Verse 1, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. And then again, down in verse 27, toward the end of the chapter, you see it again, very same exact words, let not your hearts be troubled. Then he adds this, and neither let it be afraid. 
So, so what we know right up front is that chapter 14, when Jesus is speaking these words, he is, he is talking to, to, to disciples about the troubled nature of their hearts. And it tells us two things just right up front. Number one, the disciples were troubled. They, they had troubled hearts. They were agitated. They had been stirred up. And the context of verse 13 or chapter 13 tells us why. In chapter 13, we recognize that, that, that Jesus had said to them, look, I'm going away. And where I go, you can't come and follow me right now. And, and that really got the angst of the disciples stirred up because after all, they had left everything to follow Jesus. They had been with him for the last three years of their lives. And for him to now say to them that he was leaving and where he was going, they couldn't come, really created great strife and, and anxiety in their lives. Not only that, but let's remember, Jesus had also said in chapter 13, there's a betrayer among you. There's a traitor in your midst. One, one of you, one of the 12 who, who I, he had just washed their feet, one of you will betray me. And so even though it appears that John knew and maybe Peter, the rest of them didn't know, but we do know that when Jesus said that, that created great anxiety within the group. And then let's not forget at the end of chapter 13, Jesus had identified Peter, the one who had always been the, the boisterous one and the backbone of the group, we might even say. And he looks at Peter and says, you're not going to deny me just once or twice, but you're going to deny me three times. So the context of chapter 13 tells us why there was great trouble in the group. And then Jesus begins to tell them, let not your heart be troubled. So the first thing that we know is that there was trouble, but then we are also alerted to something else. It tells us because of this twice repeated command in verse 1 and in verse 27 that everything that comes in the middle, everything that's squeezed in between those two bookends, we know that all of chapter 14 is pushing us toward the remedy, toward the, the answer, toward the solution for their troubled hearts. And, and as we look at this, and we'll, we'll do the first part this week, and Lord willing, we'll come back to it next week, what we'll begin to understand is that the troubled hearts, the remedy for their troubled hearts will come through a steadied and confident trust in the Lord Jesus. It will come through the promised work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, and it will come through their loving obedience to His commands. Those are really the three parts that Jesus puts into place here in explaining how you can find the remedy for your troubled hearts. What I want us to do this morning is focus on the first one. I want us to focus on what Jesus says there beginning in verse 1 where He says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God believe also in me. Now, if you'll remember, when we looked at this passage before, 10 weeks ago, I explained to you there that in the Greek, the words here, that the phrases could legitimately be translated as indicative statements. And the indicative statements really are statements that tell you what something is. So Jesus could have, the Greek allows for it to be translated this way. You believe in God you believe also in me, as if stating what was already true. Now, what's interesting about that, no modern version of the Bible translates those words that way. And the reason why is, is it really doesn't make sense in the context for it to be translated that way. But you, the, the, ver, the words also can be translated as commands. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, the ESV translates those words that way, as two separate commands issued by Jesus to the disciples, telling them to believe in God and to believe also in Him. But there's a third way that it can be translated, and the NIV translates it this way, and so does the New King James. It takes the first one as an indicative statement and the second one as a command. 
you believe in God, believe also in me. Now, here's the point. All of those are possible, but I would suggest to you that they kind of all end up with the same major push. And that is this. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and whether he's giving them a command to believe in God and to believe also in him or whether he's just giving a statement indicating their belief is in God and therefore they should also believe in him, what you come away with is understanding this. Jesus is making a statement that belief in God and belief in him cannot be separated from one another. They go together. They are, they are a con conjoined with one another. Your faith in God must never be separated from your faith in Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what he is saying here. And that is a clear, unabashed claim declaring his equality with the Father. And he is clearly declaring his absolute deity when he, when he makes this statement. Now, I like what Scott Kellum has written. He points out that the belief to which Christ calls his disciples in their moment of trouble here is, is not a belief to come into faith. After all, these disciples had been with him for three weeks, three years, walking with him as he, as he moved through, through his earthly ministry. However, I do believe that a call to faith absolutely is necessary and that it proceeds and it underlies what Jesus says here. But, but Kellum points out that the nuance of the verb to believe here really means to trust. That it, that it, in other words, it, it's a temperament to rest in the providence of Christ. Now, that makes sense in the context, right? Because Jesus is commanding his disciples to not have troubled hearts. And so his point is that no matter what may upset you, no matter what unrest may come your way, these disciples and you and I can find peace we can find the remedy to whatever it is that's troubling our hearts by trusting in the Lord Jesus who because He is God, He exercises sovereign control over all of our circumstances. D.A. Carson, he puts it this way. He says, for Jesus' disciples and, and for also for us who, who are thoughtful readers of the gospel, he says, if Jesus invariably speaks the word of God and performs the acts of God, should He not be trusted like God? If he tells his followers not to let their hearts be troubled, must it not be because he has ample and justifiable reasons to do so? Surely the answer to that question is yes. And it is those reasons that Jesus goes on to identify in these, these first 14 verses. Reasons for why our faith in him is so important and how that faith actually provides us with a remedy for our troubled hearts. And so that's what I want us to see this morning. Notice the first reason why trust in Christ is so imperative. Jesus can be trusted, we find here, because he delivers on what he promises. Jesus can be trusted because he delivers on what he promises. In verse 2, notice that the New King James translates it this way, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, when we looked at that passage previously a number of weeks ago, um, I made the case for you that the word mansions probably is not the best translation of, of the word monet in the Greek. Uh, mansions comes from the Latin translation of, of the Greek New Testament that was mansiones, and that's how the King James and the New King James came up with mansions. But let me say this to you, the, the word that Jesus is talking about there, he's not, he's not providing us comfort and hope in the midst of our troubled lives by telling us that when we all get to heaven, we're going to live in fenced-in castles, isolated and secluded from one another. That, that really doesn't even make sense in light of what Jesus is saying. 
He's talking to his disciples whose hearts are troubled because he's about to leave them and go away from them and they're about to experience separation anxiety. They're already experiencing it. And so Jesus is not comforting their hearts by saying when we all get to heaven we're going to live separated. No, he's saying in my Father's house are many rooms, many, many dwelling places. And so when we get there we're going to live in, in His presence and in His Father's house and we're going to enjoy the company and, the, and the, the fellowship that we have with Him but also with one another. Now, I, I treat that a little bit further in that previous sermon. You're welcome to go back and listen to it or, or whatever. But, but the point that I want to make is the next statement because the next statement, He goes on to say this. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. That's the way the New King James translates it. I think that it's actually... Better understood is the question that Jesus is asking there, as you'll find in the, the ESV and even in the NIV. Jesus is saying, in my Father's house for many rooms, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? In effect, Jesus is asking a question that forces them to reckon with His truthfulness, His veracity. And, and, and understand this, would I have told you such a thing if it weren't true? Now, the obvious answer to that question is no, he wouldn't have. Why? Because they had been with Jesus. They had walked the streets with Jesus. They had been out in the countryside with Jesus. He had never once lied to them. He had never once said one thing and did something else. He had always been truthful. He had never done anything that was, was uh, false at all. And he's, here what he's doing is he's forcing his disciples to reckon with that which they had already known about him. And that is that he was absolutely truthful and dependable and that he always followed through on his promises. And you and I, we have to do the same. You see, if we, if we honestly ask ourselves, when we find ourselves in the midst of the trouble that we come in, we have to look at it and go, look, would Jesus ever tell me something that wasn't true? Is everything he's ever told me, it's always been accurate. Even though I may not have known how it was going to come about, Jesus has never failed me. He has always been dependable. And that's exactly where he's driving these disciples to understand. Look, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? No. So, just as it was with the disciples, we must recognize that we can trust Jesus even when the circumstances that we face don't make sense to us even when we're disappointed by them, even when we're heartbroken and grief-stricken, you and I, just like these disciples, can trust and be confident that the Lord will never forsake us. In fact, that's exactly the point that he makes next. He tells them that even though he's going away, he will return for them. If, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Now, at this point, the disciples didn't understand what was about to happen. They didn't understand that by going to the cross, Jesus was securing the way for them to go to heaven. They didn't quite make that connection yet. The Holy Spirit had not yet come to help them be able to make that connection, but they were going to need to do so. And so do you and I. We have to recognize that it is by Christ's death by His resurrection and by His ascension that, that we have the way created for us to go to heaven to be with God. As that old, old song, the hymn that we used to sing, 
oftentimes is the way of the cross leads home. It is the way of the cross. That is the way that Jesus is. And so it is the cross that provides the pathway for us to experience the eternal rest that comes from being in the presence of God. So what we understand is that the issue that confronted these disciples really is the same issue that confronts you and me. Will we trust Jesus? In the midst of our troubled lives and the troubled times in which we find ourselves, when our minds are disturbed and our circumstances appear to be greater than the resources that we have to be able to combat those circumstances, will we trust Jesus? Do we believe that in Christ we have every resource that we need to overcome whatever circumstances we may face? Do we trust Jesus? Jesus makes it clear that he can be trusted because he always delivers on his promises. But notice the next thing that we learn from this passage. We notice that Jesus can be trusted because he is the exclusive way to the Father. He's the only way to the Father. There's not, ultimate, there's not another way to get there. That Jesus is the only way. He is the exclusive way to the Father. Verse 4, he says, Where I go you know and the way you know. And Thomas raises his hand and said, uh, Jesus, I believe I can probably speak for everybody else in the room when I, when I say this to you, that we have absolutely no idea where you are going. Therefore, how can we possibly know the way to get there? And to that, Jesus looks at him and says, I am the way. It's interesting that, that Jesus had already revealed this in many ways. Back in chapter 13, even in the parable, you remember when he, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, it was a parable that pointed them toward what was going to happen when he would go to the cross. They were going to be washed clean only by something that he would do for them when he went to the cross and his blood was shed to, to deliver them from their sins. It also happened when, when he even said that there was a betrayer among them. The betrayer was going to, to deliver him up to the authorities, and that in and of itself pointed them to the cross. He, multiple times in, in before this moment, even as early as, as John chapter 12, Jesus had talked about being lifted up. Every one of those moments was pointing his disciples to the cross, and yet they still were not able to understand that that was what was happening. So Jesus takes the, the camera away from focusing in on the cross directly and turns it around to himself and says, look, if you can't understand that, maybe you can understand this. I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Each one of those claims is staggering in and of itself. Time doesn't permit us to really dig as deeply as I would love to, but let, understand this. The definite articles in front of the nouns mean all, everything in that sentence. Jesus didn't say, I am a way, among others. He did not say that my truth was my personal truth and you can have your personal truth and everybody else can have their own personal truth. No, he says, I am the truth. He didn't talk about life coming in multiple different possibilities. No, he says, I am the only life. And if anyone mistook what he said, the last statement really slammed the door because he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Listen, in general... When we talk about Jesus in the world today and when we talk about him, people will like that and they, they believe he was a good man and a good teacher who lived a good life and did good things. And as long as we leave it there, everything is fine. But when we start concentrating on the exclusivity of Christ, 
when we start looking at passages just such as this one and others in the New Testament that claim that there is only one way to the Father, at that point, our popularity seems to drive, drop dramatically at that point. But let me tell you, this was not a one-off statement by our Lord with regard to who He was or what He came to do. In fact, in another one of those I Am statements in John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. And then He says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He was not one of many doors. He is the door. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven by which men, among which men may be saved, except for the name of Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, for there is no, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now listen, from these and from other passages in the scriptures, what we recognize is that God has provided the road. He has provided the path. He has provided the way of redemption, and that way is only through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in answering Thomas's question, Jesus moves from speaking about the way that he himself must go, which is the way of the cross, to speaking about the way that his disciples must go, and that is only through him. And he's saying, the way that I'm going is to prepare a place for you. And the only way for you to get there is to come through me. So Jesus has admonished his disciples not to let their hearts become troubled. And he's told them that a faith in God is by its necessity, it is equivalent to faith in him. It has to go together. And he says, you can have that and you can always trust me because I deliver on my promises. And you can trust me because I'm the only way to the Father. That leads us to the last reason that we have to trust Christ. The third point on your outline is this. Jesus can be trusted because when you know Jesus, you know God. When you know Jesus, you know God. In verse 7, Jesus says this, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. I like how Jacob Gerber has analyzed this verse. He notes that, what Jesus says here is not as strong as, as what he said to some unbelieving Jews back in John chapter 8, verse 19. To those Jews that were challenging him and did not believe in him, Jesus said this. He says, you neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Jesus is not quite that blunt with his disciples here. And yet he says that they have a knowledge of him. They do know him and they have a knowledge of the father through him. But then notice he also gigs them some and he tells them, look, but you don't fully know me because you have not fully known the Father. But from this point forward, you will know him. And when you see me, you will have seen him. But having said this, Philip's mind is thrown into a quandary. Have you noticed that through this, even when Jesus was talking in John 13, Peter interrupts. Here in John 14, Thomas is interrupted. Now Jesus is starting again, and now it's Philip who's interrupting. And later we'll see that it is, it's Judas, it's Thaddeus that interrupts him in the middle of another conversation. And it's like they just can't get all of their thoughts together. And so Jesus has made this profound statement there in verse 7, and Philip goes, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be sufficient for us. Now consider this. Philip is among 11 guys who had walked the back country woods of 
Israel, and the streets of the major cities, even in Jerusalem. They had been with him out on the lake when he had spoken to the winds and they had stopped blowing and the sea became placid. He, they were there when he walked toward them on the water, walking. They were there on the, the hills up in Cana when Jesus fed the 5,000. They had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. And yet, Philip sits, stands and looks at Jesus and says, can you just give us the big one? Can you just show us the Father? Then, hey, if you do that, then it'll be sufficient for us. Carson says this. He says this, what Jesus says to to Philip here is a lesson for slow learners. And I, for one, am glad that Philip said what he did and I'm glad that John included it in his gospel because... I don't know about you, but I'm just being transparent with you this morning. I'm a lot like Philip. I can look back across my life and I can see so many places where God intervened in my life, answered my direct prayers and requests, came and undergirded me when I didn't have a reason to be undergirded. And he came and answered prayers for me that I didn't have any reason for anybody to ever answer. And he knew what was in my heart before I had even said a word. And he had proven himself a thousand times. And I find myself so often going, God, can you show me the big one? No. Understand, what we see Jesus do next is the closest thing to frustration and exasperation that you will see in any of the interactions that he has with his disciples. Notice what he says in verse 8. Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? I mentioned this in the first service. You know, there's times when you like to hear your name called. There's times that you'd prefer that the person calling your name didn't know it. I would imagine for Philip, this was probably a moment where he was looking for a place to hide, thinking I should have just kept my mouth shut. Jesus knows my name now and he's calling me out. Jesus goes on, he says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, Philip, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Carson, Carson, as I said, says this is a lesson for slow learners, and I'm just so grateful that it is because I recognize my name in those passages. Just a simple cursory overview of this reading tells us that Jesus is, is equating himself with God. And he's saying, look, if you've seen me do anything, you've seen God at work. If you've heard me speak, you've heard God speaking. It was God who empowered me to do the works that I did that corroborated the words of my testimony. How can you... Philip, you've had a ringside seat this entire time. What what more do you need? It was just days before Jesus had said in John 12, verse 44 and 45, Who who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who believes in me... He who sees me sees him who sent me. Evidently, Philip and the rest of the disciples had had trouble accepting Jesus' words at face value. But you want to know who didn't have trouble accepting Jesus' words? His opponents. 
They didn't miss what Jesus was saying. In John chapter 5, he heals a paralytic on the Sabbath day. The Jews want to stone him. And they tell him why. The Jews saw all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. They didn't miss what Jesus was saying. In John chapter 10, when Jesus is talking about the sheep that are his, and that when, he, when the father gives them to them, he loses none of them. They wanted to stone him again. And then down in verse 33, Jesus wants to know why they wanted to kill him. And he says, for a good work, we don't stone you, but for blasphemy and because you being a man, make yourself God. But here it is on the night before Jesus is to be crucified. At this very late date, on the eve of his crucifixion, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough. Jesus responds to Philip by appealing for him to believe. Verse 11 really is a repetition of what verse 1 says. Verse 11 says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me or else believe me for the sake of my works. It really is just a longer way of saying what he said in verse 1. You believe in God, Philip, believe also in me. As one has written, Jesus is not asking for Philip to make a blind leap in the dark, as some describe faith, but he's asking Philip to believe him based upon his track record of performing miracles, keeping his promises, speaking forth the word of God. Listen, miracles in and of themselves will not create faith in unbelievers. But they serve as signs to confirm faith already in the hearts of believers. And this is what Jesus' point is. He says, believe me based upon the signs that I've already given you. And here in the last two verses, three verses, you see the importance of that. Verses 12 through 14, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Two very important things as we come to a close this morning. The first thing is that Jesus connects the faith of those who believe in him with them actually going out and doing works that are even greater than he has done. Now that's astounding. I've never seen someone speak to the wind and it stopped blowing. I've never seen one create a meal out of nothing but a few fish and a few loaves of bread and feed thousands. I've never seen anyone walk on water. I've never seen anyone call someone forth from the grave. And yet, Jesus says that those who have faith in him will do even greater works than he has done. How is that possible? Well, we know that it's possible because we've read that it's possible. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, it rested upon those same disciples that were all cloistered up in fear in another upper room in Jerusalem. And when that Holy Spirit fire came upon them, it empowered them to leave that room and to be spread out throughout all Jerusalem. And it ended up Peter out on the street corner preaching about Jesus and 3,000 souls came to know Christ that day. Not only that, but the birth of the church, as we just sang about this morning in that last song, took place and the fire still began to go. And for centuries since, it continues to permeate the world. And the gospel of Christ continues to be preached. And people still come to know faith in Christ. And what we have confidence in is that that will continue, regardless of what overcoming circumstances we may have placed against us, that the gospel will continue to go out with its fire and with its power. And it will continue to see lives wander the Lord 
as it is proclaimed. Those are the works that I believe Jesus is referring to when he says greater works than these will you do. But not only that, he says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, understand, that's not a blank check given to every believer that they can just write in anything that they want to. Absolutely not. As John MacArthur has put it, praying in the name of Jesus is more than merely mentioning his name at the end of our prayers. If we are truly praying in Jesus' name, we will pray only for that which is consistent with his perfect character and that for which will bring him glory. But think about this. When, when, when Jesus says, look, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it, consider how much comfort that would have provided these trouble-hearted disciples. From their perspective, Jesus was about to leave them. And with that leaving, their dreams were collapsing and they were devastated. And yet by promising that he would answer their prayers when they prayed according to his will, Jesus gives them a rock upon which they can stand. And he gives them a promise that he will not leave them and he will not forsake them. And anything else that they faced, they could confidently face knowing that they weren't going to lack in anything. His resources were going to be greater than any circumstances they faced. And that's why the Apostle Paul could write later in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And therein lies the remedy to our troubled hearts. It is our confident, steadied faith in Jesus Christ and we know that we can have it because He always delivers on His promises. He's the only and exclusive way to the Father and He, when we see Him, we see God. And that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. To have untroubled hearts, we must trust Christ because his word is true. He is the only way to the Father and he makes the Father known. His word is true. He's the only way to the Father and he makes the Father known. Here's the question. Have you come to know the Father through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus is God's only appointed way to eternal life. He went to the cross and he died a criminal's death in your place. And God's wrath against sin was placed upon Jesus as your substitute so that you could be free from the penalty of your sin. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, but he was raised again on the third day. And by that, God vindicated his son through his resurrection. And he is now ascended to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes on my behalf and on your behalf. And there he reigns and he rules until his promised return. And what I want you to know is that the scriptures call you to faith in him. Faith in him as Savior and Lord. Faith that acknowledges that your need of his salvation because you are a sinner. And the scriptures declare that all who will humble themselves before the Lord Jesus will be saved. And I want you to know that that is the very first step that any person must take in order to have an untroubled heart. It is to come by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved by him. If that is your testimony, then... Listen, to know you have a troubled heart is to know that he is the sovereign God who has taken everything that has come into your life into account. You are not where you are by accident. 
He has never been surprised by one single thing. He is the sovereign God who always delivers on his promises. Because that's the case, there's no reason for you to look for answers elsewhere. There's nowhere else that you can go look. If you want to go find your answers to what you want to find in life, you will only lead you to further trouble and to further problems. Jesus is the only and exclusive way to the Father. Trust in him. Finally, trust in him because he reveals the Father. In Jesus, we see everything that we would ever want to know. We see the love of God. We see the mercy of God. We see the justice of God and the holiness of God. And we see in him the way to peace. When you see Jesus, you see the Father. So brothers and sisters, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust Christ because his word is true He's the only way to the Father, and he makes the Father known. This is yet another lesson from the upper room, and it is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for how it speaks to us right in the middle of the circumstances in which we find ourselves, and how you call us to faith in you, to complete, confident trust in you. And so I thank you for that, and I thank you for revealing yourself through your word this morning. For those who may not have ever come to you by faith, maybe they have never placed their trust and faith in you. I pray that today would be that day that through your Holy Spirit drawing and moving in their hearts that you would bring them to a place of repentance, a place of humility, a place of confession. For those of us that that is the direction that we have gone, I pray that you would strengthen us in our resolve to follow you. God, I ask that you do this for your glory and for our good. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.